Welcome to the one within all to another episode of Interverse. I'm your host, Chance. Very excited for this one today. We're going to be connecting dots, not just the stars of constellations and the archetypal synchro mystic mythical qualities that they seem to transmit or reflect about the human experience. We are going to be considering the role of plasma in our human origins of civilization, our uh, connections with what we perceive as the divine or the other is going to be a huge conversation. Today on the podcast, we've got Dr. Gregory Little, who says we should just call him Greg. <laughs> and he is the author, co-author of a bunch of books with Andrew Collins, such as Denisovan Origins, about hu- hybrid humans and the uh, genesis of ancient America, The Path of Souls. The Native American Death Journey, Cygnus, Orion, the Milky Way, Giant Skeletons and Mounds. <laughs> so much there. Uh, Greg Little is also one of the reasons why our research community even has so much information and inspiration to look into the mound building cultures as he provided us with a huge catalog uh, quite a long time ago that is basically the roadmap to <laughs> the phenomenon in North America. Pretty amazing. Today, the main book that we're going to be covering, although I have questions from the whole range of his work, is Origins of the Gods, which sheds light on the skinwalker, transdimensional intelligence's question, and gives us a very tangible scientific uh, bridge between the material and the spiritual, the uh, etheric and the physical, in the form of intelligent, self-organizing, and possibly quite conscious and intelligent plasma beings. To me, this is fascinating. It connects in directly with a lot of the work I do in sound healing and tuning the human biofield with uh, the plasma of the body, seeming to be able to create separate intelligences within itself. (laughs) So there's so much on the table to talk to with uh, Greg today. I'm super excited. Thank you for being here, man. Welcome to Interverse. Well, thank you. Um, Hopefully I'm coming through fine. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, You made a uh, archetypal mystical synchro. What what was that phrase that you used? I've never heard that before. It's it's very clever. Synchro mystic. Synchro mystic. But you said archetypal first. Archetypal synchro mystic. I like that. That's a very interesting phrase. Uh, did you come up with that? 
That's not my phrase. It maybe originates with Christopher Knowles, but okay. I, uh, my audience and, and people that like to listen to me talk, they definitely seem to have applied that label to me, a synchro mystic. Okay. I like that. Very interesting. Well, like I say, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we'll be here for a while. And I guess uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. It's really exciting to talk to you because I've been stoked on your work since back with the uh, Denisovan origins. That was, I think, when I came onto the scene. But maybe you should just introduce the entire trajectory of your life because at one point you were involved in more of a psychological profession, which interestingly does dovetail perfectly with looking into these native stories, shamanism, and the uh, the mystical. So maybe give us more of your background. Well, I'm actually pretty old. So uh, back in 1972, I entered graduate school in psychology. I had a, I got my bachelor's degree in early 72, started graduate school. Uh, I worked all the way through college, but I had a professor, a major professor, uh, PhD in psychology, of course, uh, from Vanderbilt University. His wife had a uh, medical degree, an MD. She was a psychiatrist also from Vanderbilt. And they were interested in the phenomena going on in the very early 70s, which at that time, which I know you don't remember, but back in the early 70s, there were things going on in the new age uh, that were really uh they were hot. You'd see it everywhere. People were doing spoon bending parties. Uh, they were building little pyramids and trying to test out pyramid power. There were ideas that plants could think and plants could uh, perhaps even communicate with us, that they had intelligence. Uh, there were all kinds of things going on. Lots of trance channeling then. Uh, it was it was it was a fad. So my major professor and his wife were interested in that. And because they uh, we got along very well and they started taking me along to this, uh, to these activities. And we did it every weekend. Uh, We'd usually go to two or three of these parties or activities every weekend, Uh, went to lots of trance channeling. I was never really uh, impressed with any of that. We went to a lot of spoon bending parties. Uh, You familiar with what that is? I mean, Geller like, stuff. Have you seen somebody bend a spoon without? Yes, I have. I have seen Whoa. it, and it is. You know, you hold the spoon. Sometimes you'd see Yuri Geller. Uh, you'll you'll take the spoon and want, I can't do it. I've tried. I can't do it. So the spoon goes through your finger, and then you just kind of wiggle it, and it just kind of falls over like that. Okay, there is so, no spoon. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, it's like the molecules melt or something. I don't know. Anyway, it never worked for me, never worked for my professors, but we watch people do it. Uh, the skeptics will say it's trickery, of course, uh, whatever. Uh, also, people used to say that there were uh, gurus who could make plants bloom. Flowers could bloom in the dead of winter. Uh, the idea of pyramid power was you could build a pyramid out of plexiglass, wood, anything, have it at very specific angles. You could put razor blades in it, and the pyramid power would keep the razor blades sharp, keep them from rusting. Uh, you could put plants in there, and they would do well. You could put food in. It would never rot. Uh, all those ideas. We actually tested that out in the psychology labs, which my my major in in 
graduate school, I was in experimental psychology. My specialty was the area of psychopharmacology, which is the study of how drugs work in the brain uh, at a molecular and a cellular level. Uh, actually started publishing in that field in 1972 in the International Society for Neuroscience publications. Uh, 72, long time ago. Uh, anyway, none of that worked. The only thing that worked is we set up an experiment in the labs with philodendrons, which is a very large plant. Uh, and again, the idea is, is that plants had feelings or sentience, intelligence of some kind. Uh, and we had uh, 12 channel, 8 channel physiograph machines. Uh, we hooked those up to the plants and we did these experiments. Um, I know we have quite a bit of time here, so I'll go ahead and describe it. There were the major professor that ran this experiment. He sat at the physiograph and he had these pieces of paper and there were six graduate students. Each of us was instructed to take one piece of paper and follow the instructions. Five of the pieces of paper said, go into the room, sit down, do nothing for basically one minute and then leave. So I happened to get one that said, go to the room, sit down and don't do anything. One of the pieces of paper said, go into the room, walk up to the plant, tear a leaf off, put the leaf in your pocket, sit down for the rest of the minute and then leave. But don't tell anybody that you have that leaf in your pocket. Then we took, I don't remember the exact time. It was a half hour or an hour later. We went back into the room one by one and did the same thing, just went in and all of us went in and just sat down. And then we'd come out one at a time. And the idea was to see if the plant could recognize the person who tore the leaf. And it did, which was kind of astonishing to all of us. The plant, the physiograph machine just kind of went crazy. Uh, when that person came in who had torn the leaf, the machine uh, went crazy, and it recognized the person who tore the leaf. So that was the only thing that really worked. Pyramid power didn't work. We couldn't bend spoons. The rest of the stuff, uh, we just we couldn't verify any of it. So that was really how I got into doing a lot of research on it. That all kind of led me into really getting into UFOs. Uh, I was, uh, when I graduated from the psychology department, with a master's in science. I then moved to the counseling department. I was at Mem what was then Memphis State University. Uh, I got a doctorate in counseling and educational psychology. And because uh, of just the way teaching assignments are, I had graduate assistantships, teaching assistantships, which only ran for nine months. So I needed a summer job. I wound up getting hired at a local prison as a part-time counselor in a drug treatment program, which was a therapeutic community. Very large prison. It's the largest prison in the state of Tennessee. A few months later, for just happenstance reasons, I just happened to be the last man standing. Uh, I was appointed director of that program. Uh, and I was in my very early 20s. It was way too early for this. So I found myself running prison programs in my early 20s. And uh, I just kept going. Uh, I did more and more work in the prisons. I started doing work in criminal psychology. Uh, around 1990, I started traveling all over the United States and other countries 
doing consulting work and training work in criminal justice, going into prisons, parole, probation. And I still do a lot of that to this day. So I'm, I'm best known in the field of criminal psychology uh, and criminal treatment. I have roughly 45 treatment workbooks in that field, uh, and I'm still pretty active in it. So I still have a professional career in that field. All along that time, that whole bit of time, because I was uh, working pretty much whenever I wanted to and where I wanted to in all this traveling, uh, I was taken to places by government officials. For example, uh, I spent two straight weeks in Puerto Rico and the adjutant general of the Puerto Rican National Guard, who was also uh, in the governor's cabinet, had a limousine drive me around Puerto Rico all over the place to all the UFO sites, all the Indian mound sites, which I got interested in in 1983. We'll get into that shortly. Uh, and he let me talk to military uh, members uh, in the National Guard, which is what they have there, uh, about their UFO sightings and USO, underwater uh, submerged object sightings. Uh, so I talked to a lot of them then. And that was actually 1989 that I did that. Uh, in Washington state, there were government officials that went with me to the Yakima Indian Reservation to look for UFOs at night because that was a hotspot for UFO reports. In Sweden, uh, there were officials in Sweden that allowed us to travel all over the place uh, and look at virtually all of the mounds there. Sweden has thousands of mounds identical to the mounds you find here in the United States. Uh, so I've been to almost all 50 states doing this, uh, been around, started writing in this field in 1980. Well, really, 82 is when I finished my first book. It came out in 1984. In those days, uh, it took a couple years for a book to come out. My first book was called The Archetype Experience. Uh, I have an updated version of it here. It is a follow-up book to Carl Jung's last book, which was called Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky which Carl Jung wrote a lot about UFOs. He was very interested in the phenomenon. He was interested in contactees and abductees, uh, which was just the beginning of the abduction phenomena then. Contactees had been around since the 40s. So that's kind of my background in this. Uh, I got into Indian Mounds shortly after this book came out in 1984. Uh, actually, it was through a series of dreams. I made a uh, sort of a promise that I would try to visit and document every single Native American Indian mound in the United States and get photos of it and eventually come up with some kind of way to preserve that information. The result of that was this uh, monstrosity here, uh, the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Native American Indian Mounds and Earthworks. Uh, and that's been out. 2009 was the first edition. 2016 was the updated edition. Uh, it's got like a thousand sites in it. I don't even know how many photos anymore. I've counted, I think it's 1400 to 1500 photos and maps. So that, uh, that's kind of a background. I met Andrew Collins back in 2003 
right before my wife and I uh, got involved with what is known as the ARE's uh, Search for Atlantis Project. Uh, it was a very fun thing to do and interesting. My wife and I spent 25 weeks over a 10-year period, uh, mainly on our own boat, in the Bahamas with uh, side, several side-scan sonars, lots of underwater film and camera. We took an archaeologist with us usually. We had an archaeological permit, and we were looking for archaeological ruins in the Bahamas. Uh, we found 31 crash planes, among, among other things, did a whole series of documentaries. Uh, with uh, National Geographic, we did find one of the most important of the lost planes in the Bermuda Triangle, not Flight uh, 19. We didn't find that, although I wish we had. Um, Andrew Collins and I have been friends since roughly 2002 and three. And we just decided we want, we had the same ideas and decided we want, wanted to write a series of books together. So we did. Uh, that's a summary that there's just too much to say. I guess when you live as long as I do and you have the time and the uh, energy to write all that, there's just a lot to talk about. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, dude, your life story is sort of an example of why I have the philosophy on time that I do, where if you sort of do the same thing repetitively in the rat race hamster wheel, life feels a lot shorter. But, yeah. you know, when you're doing new things, chasing the adventure, exploring the novelty of the universe, it probably feels like a huge life. That's awesome. Well, one of the things that I do, I write self-help books, too. That's a, a whole nother story. I don't think we'll talk about it much. But you have so many books on the Amazon author pages. Uh, I've got 70. I don't know now. I'm try, I've tried to count them. I've got 70 some books in print that are still available. Uh, like I said, 40, 40. Some of those are 40. I think it's 41 are workbooks. Some of them are very large workbooks. There are trauma books for that used in the VA. Uh, veterans that have had trauma and TBI, which is traumatic brain injury. Um, like I say, I'm still very active in all that. So I still write a whole bunch of things in that field. But in the self-help books, what I tell people over and over is that you have all of us, all of us have these things that pop into our head. Say, I kind of like to see that. I'd kind of like to go there. I'd kind of like to do that. You've only got one life, as far as we know. And if there's an afterlife, it's still, you still only have one life. The afterlife is a different life. It's not this life. It's something else. And if you're reincarnated, well, that's a different life. And you won't remember this one anyway, but you've got one life. Do what you want to do. Explore. Go out there and look. It's a big world. Uh, right now in the pandemic, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing stopping people from going out and exploring. Nothing except yourself. Now, I know people have limited resources, but there are always things near you. I tell people all the time that I'm sure no matter where you live in the United States, there are archaeological sites and Indian mounds somewhere near you. And people are astonished when they go to these mound sites. They have no idea how incredible some of these places are. Uh, Andrew Collins has been to a lot of these sites with us. And when, and when we took Andrew to a place called Newark, Ohio. It's a circle, an octagon, and a, there's a, a giant circle there, too. Andrew could not believe that people just didn't know about this site in Newark, Ohio. He could not believe it. We took tours into the place, and the bus driver who lived near it 
We had we had two buses with 52 people in each bus doing a tour to this this area of Ohio. And the bus driver had never been there. And he said, I can't believe this is here. And none of us know about it. It is a gigantic set of earthworks and mounds in pristine, perfect condition. It extends for miles and miles. It is the the most extensive geometric earthworks found in the world. And Andrew at that time lived in the very middle of Avebury. He had a stone, a standing stone in his backyard. And he said, this is more incredible than Avebury is, except for the stones. This place didn't have standing stones in Newark, Ohio, but it is simply incredible. And you can find something like this almost anywhere in the country. So probably close to your backyard, there's something. Do yeah, I've, I'm near the Cahokia Mounds. Yes. And that's a huge one, too. It's Cahokia is gigantic. And Monk's Mound is 100 feet. I don't want to get into all this. It's 100 feet tall. It, it sits on uh, 14 acres. Its base is larger than the Great Pyramid in Giza. And inside Cahokia Mound, in its in the very base of it, there is a gigantic stone structure, which is a complete mystery. It will probably never be opened, never gone into. People speculate, oh, there's a UFO in there. Probably not. Uh, what's probably in there is an incredible burial of a chief and probably all of his entourage. They're probably all buried in here, and there would be lots and lots of artifacts in there, incredible stuff. Cahokia, Illinois is right across the Mississippi River from St. Louis. In fact, you can see the arch in downtown St. Louis from the top of Cahokia Mound. It's like a 10-story building with a 13-acre base. It's incredible. And it had 120 mounds originally. In the park today, there are, I think it's 82 that they have now identified that is in the Cahokia Park today. So it's incredible. There's more mounds in Cahokia than there are pyramids in all of Egypt. That's incredible. Yeah, dude, it's <laughs> it's really something whenever like you can see photos of these things and amazing that you provided all that resource with your mounted book. But when you're standing at the base of it and looking up, it is quite uh, it's just quite incredible. You think you start to think like how much time and effort does it take to move that much earth? And it's really amazing. But to go back to the Newark, Ohio earthworks, I think this is a cool transition point to talk about. The plasma beings side of things and the entity contact that is part of the UFO phenomenon. It's not necessarily like ships that are seen all the time. Sometimes people see flying humanoids. Yeah. (laughs) And there's a big connection there with the uh, Newark, Ohio earthworks region and a very famous case. So maybe we could get into that. Well, there's a lot, uh, a lot of things, a lot of these sites, a lot of these geometric earthworks, they were formed for the conduction of rituals. Uh, Most of them, like Newark, dates back to roughly 500, 600 BC. That's when it was built. And what it is, there is a a huge circular formation. I'll see if I can. uh, I know some people can only listen to this, uh, but others can see some of this. And maybe if I can find the uh, quick illustration here. Here you go. I don't know if how visible this will be. But the Newark Earthworks, this is all part of it. 
the, the circle and octagonal right here. Now, this is an area from this site, this is hard to do, to over here, it's one and a half miles in distance. That's how far it is. This circle and octagon, which there's the circle, the circle is a 20-acre circle. The photo over here shows you some of the walls. The octagon encloses 50 acres. And the circle and octagon was, here was the purpose. And the purpose was determined uh, in the 1980s by two non-archaeologists, but also college professors. And what they found is that the circle and the octagon its function, its main function, was to track the movements of the moon over the moon's 18.61-year cycle. So what they could do with that is they could... The metonic cycle, right? Yes. They could perfectly predict the eclipses with this. But it took 18.61 years for them to construct this circle and octagon. So basically, the octagon, which encloses 50 acres, it's eight-sided, of course. And at each of the points, there is a truncated pyramid mound. A truncated, truncated means flat top. So a pyramid mound at each of the eight points. So by standing on one of those mounds and looking through an opening on the other side or directly across another truncated mound was one of the key spots in the moon's movements over this 18.61 years. And what the archaeologists have said is that it was a permanent structure designed to track the movements of the moon so that eclipses could be predicted. And we know that they did perform rituals there. A lot of ritualistic artifacts have been excavated from that site. Uh, lots of ritualistic artifacts, some of which also uh, clearly show the use of psychedelics, such as psilocybin there, psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, we know that for certain. Uh, but rituals were performed in these. Now, the the mainstream will tell you that these rituals were all psychological or that they used the hallucinogens and whatever they were doing, they uh, they hallucinate. Uh, everything that comes through rituals is hallucinations. But that's not what the Native Americans tell us. The Native Americans tell us and the shaman tell us and what is in the ancient, well, I'm calling it ancient, 1700s and 1800s literature from ethnographers who talked to the actual shaman that what they did was literally manifest physical beings through the rituals, spiritual beings inside of these geometric earthworks. Uh, for a long time, there are thousands of these geometric earthworks in the United States, thousands here alone. Many of them are circular. Some of them have a single opening. Some of them have no openings. The openings are usually oriented to specific stars and star risings and settings. Uh, obviously, Orion fits in it. The constellation of Cygnus and the star Deneb, which served as the North Pole star 17,000 years ago. Actually, 19,000 years ago, Deneb served as the North Pole star. Um, those, Isn't that a part of the Cygnus constellation? Yes, Deneb is the bright, the brightest star of the Cygnus constellation. And we again, talk a lot about pole star oh yeah. stuff on this show. That's a big, a really big thread. Well, the pole star was considered a hole in the sky. It was the entry point and the exit point for souls to go 
back to the other world. And what the other world is, is another question that has to do with the afterlife or where souls come through. Uh, you will find that discussed actually in Hebrew literature, ancient Hebrew literature. They call it the guff. Uh, the guff is the container of souls. Uh, they, the Zuni uh, talk about it. Uh, virtually all of the Native American tribes have some concept of the other world. Uh, in the what, uh, ancient Hebrew literature, Melchizedek is a reference to this pole star. But yes. that is at the time that it's already shifted to Polaris. Right. Right. Well, it uh, it shifts. Uh, you know, we have this 26,000 year uh, movement, the the procession of the equinoxes as the Earth does its daily spin, uh, spins around. Uh, it wobbles just like a top does. And it takes 26,000 years for the entire wobble to occur. So there's 26,000 times 365 rotations of the earth uh, before the full wobble is done. As, as it wobbles, the, the pole star, the North Pole Star, which today is Polaris, it changes. It changes very, very slowly. It is imperceptible to us. But roughly 17 to 19,000 years ago, Deneb was the North Pole Star. And it, at the time, it was the North Pole Star in the very far north sky, on the very far southern horizon was Orion. So there was this line from Orion in the south and Deneb all the way in the north. And you can take all of the Native American literature from the ethnographers where they talk to them uh, to get some of this information. And you can tell that this stuff, this information that they had goes back to at least 17,000 years. Now, you can add another 26,000 years to that and take it back to roughly nearly 50,000 years ago. And the exact same alignment occurred where. Deneb was the North Pole Star because every 26,000 years, Deneb is the North Pole Star. And, and Orion is all the way to the south. Orion is on the southern horizon. So Native Americans had this idea and this belief, which many other cultures had, ancient cultures had, that when a person dies, the soul makes a transition back to the other world. And that's the term that I'll use. The other world is wherever the point of origin is. And the soul would make a leap to the extreme south and get to Orion's Nebula, which is Messier 42. And then the next day, the next night, it started on a journey following the Milky Way. It's the, the Milky Way was seen as a path of souls. It was called a wolf trail. There's eight or nine different names, but it, but it all means the same thing. They saw the Milky Way, that band of stars going across the sky as souls moving from the north to the south. And some actually went from the south to the north. So the souls would go from the south to the north and they would reach Deneb. And it was a portal. The North Pole Star, where everything seemed to rotate around, it was always there at night. It didn't move. They saw that as the exit point. And that exit point led them through a portal and to the other world, which is not often described. It is described some in Native American literature, but there's two different kinds of literature. There's sacred knowledge, which almost nobody knows. And then there is common myth uh, and commonplace knowledge, 
which is what the stories are in most of those books you'll get about Native American myths and legends and mythology. Uh, those are commonplace myths. And most of those were made for children. But they do not tell you the sacred knowledge. And I know at some point here with the time that we have, uh, we'll get into what that sacred knowledge is. I don't even remember what the original question was, man. But I can, <laughs> when I get into this, I can just go. Yeah, this uh, is great. We can, we can go back around to the, um, the Mothman sure. question if there's time for it, because well, I like yeah, where we're at now. Okay. So Mothman, I, I will, I'll touch on it. Uh, in the Mothman episode, which I think almost everybody knows, uh, what occurred. And it was mainly John Keel, uh, the author, uh, ufologist, uh, Fortean fellow, a uh, very famous man. He was not popular with other ufologists. In fact, a lot of them disliked him very much because John Keel did not believe that UFOs were extraterrestrial craft. He didn't think they were nuts and bolts. They were paranormal. Uh, we've taken a lot of John Keel's ideas and stuck them in this new book, uh, Origins of the Gods. There it is. Um, and But Keel really got well known during the Mothman uh, episode. Uh, Mothman occurred in the very early 1970s. Uh, it was a 13 month thing. And in this town, it was on the Ohio River, uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia and Galliopolis, uh, it, Galliopolis, uh, uh, Ohio were the two places. And there's a bridge that goes from Point Pleasant to Galliopolis. Uh, there's a new bridge there today because the ending point, the, the ending point of this 13 month affair was when the bridge around Christmas time collapsed and 40 some people died with the collapse of this bridge into the Ohio River. But leading up to it, there was this roughly seven foot tall creature uh, that had wings, had gl- big glowing red eyes, was seen by literally hundreds of people mainly in Point Pleasant, but also in Galliopolis, including several National Guardsmen at the airport in Galliopolis. Uh, they saw it, too. Uh, a lot of people ignore that, but there were military people that actually saw this giant bird. Now, the reason it's called Mothman is because it didn't have any, it didn't have any feathers. So they said that it had wings kind of like a moth, featherless wings. So that's how it got the term Mothman. But people were afraid of it. There is uh, and one story where a woman who I have interviewed, uh, I believe she's still alive. Uh, she owns a restaurant in downtown Point Pleasant. Andrew and I actually went in and talked to her for about an hour one day. This was uh, back, I think, in 2004 that we did that. Uh, and the Mothman would literally fly and land on their second story roof by her bedroom window and look in her bedroom window. Uh, And she had dreams about it. Lots of people there had bad dreams that something was going to happen. Uh, Keel found a legend, which if you go to Point Pleasant, you can see this legend by going to uh, a bridge that leads across the uh, Kanoa River. The, the Kanoa River empties into the Ohio right at Point Pleasant. So there is a bridge that goes across the Kanoa River. And there is a park devoted to Chief Cornstalk. And there was a battle there, and Chief Cornstalk was a Shawnee chief who cursed the whites there 
because, well, they actually killed him. There's a depiction at this park showing them breaking in and killing him. He had come and surrendered and the settlers there came in and killed him. But before he died, he cursed him and he cursed the area. And John Keel actually talked about that in his book. Uh, so that's kind of the story. It's not that far from um, Newark. Newark is around 75 miles to the east of Columbus, Ohio, uh, and about 50, mi- 50 more miles, and you'll get to this area of where Mothman took place. Uh, there have been more episodes of the Mothman or a similar creature being seen uh, up and down the Ohio River, uh, Native Americans had legends of a gigantic bird, uh, a very dangerous bird. Uh, I have been to the site where the bird supposedly lived. There are caves on this bluff. It's near Alton, Illinois. Uh, I've probably been to all these places. I probably shouldn't even say that. Uh, we didn't get to the caves. We started up at, and... Um, we weren't allowed to do that, so we got called back and, and had to come down. But I didn't get to the cave. Supposedly in the cave where this bird lived, they found bones, piles of bones, including piles of human bones. Uh, long involved story with that, but yeah, uh, all this stuff is quite strange, uh, and it all seems to tie together. Uh, it is a jigsaw puzzle, and that's a term that I'll, I'll use here in a bit. Sorry, right, about yeah, all that, but I did. I wanted to get them all. I did want to talk about Mothman a bit for sure, because it's a perfect example of what is possible in terms of like the mm, paranormal <laughs> breaking breaking into the physical reality of things that seem like they should they don't have any existence outside of the mind. Uh, there's a great chapter near the end of your half of the Origins of the Gods book about sort of weaving all these different threads together to create the the full quilt of <laughs> all the concepts in one. Uh, but I want to go back to Orion and Cygnus a little bit. Yeah. Uh, it's fascinating that Orion has this a nebula Messier 42, because yes. that's basically like Messiah. <laughs> yeah. And Orion is the mighty hunter, uh, ba- a very common archetype of Messiahs in astrotheology from like Hercules to Nimrod. And like a lot of them, like the histories of in the Indo-European world that are too far back to confirm whether or not they're real. They seem to encode astrotheology and astrology, probably possibly more than actual real tangible history that at some point, the shaman class of these cultures, which would be the priest class decided to encode their own cultural history with the story of the stars maybe as a way to uh, have a unifying myth that fit the rest of the, I guess, moral or uh, what's the word? Cosmological framework that the civilization fits within. So anyway, Orion, Messiah, Messier. My question in that is, did the natives of the Americas also see the constellation as a mighty hunter? No, I don't know. Uh, No. Uh, their ideas of all the all the constellations were completely different. And that actually is one of the reasons there was so much confusion in this. Uh, I actually had the same thing when I, I had a shaman. This is in the book Origins of the Gods. Uh, one of the Cheyenne, Cheyenne shaman, genuine Cheyenne shaman. He was the arrow priest of the Cheyenne. His grandfather was the last high holy priest of the Cheyenne. His name was Edward Red Hat. 
born in the 1800s. Uh, he was uh, befriended by a German ethnographer who spent years with him. Uh, the guy's name was Lou White Eagle that came and stayed with my wife and I for 30 days. And we talked quite a bit about this idea of beings coming from the stars, uh, what their constellations were, what is the importance of these. Uh, and he made it very clear. They don't use the same, they didn't use the same names as we did. Uh, they don't connect them the same way. And even within different tribes, you know, there's so many different tribes. Uh, the different tribes, while they would, they would talk about the same star patterns, uh, such as what we call Orion, uh, they would look at and they would, they would call it something else and they would connect it to something else. Cygnus, uh, they saw Cygnus as a cross uh, in, in... Which it is. I mean, if you look at those stars together, it is yeah. basically a cross. But in Greek mythology, it is a bird. It's a swan. It is a gigantic swan. And you can see that when you see, you know, you can see the cross. Oh, my God, I see the cross. And somebody says, well, look, just connect the next two stars and add one more. And it's a giant bird. Yeah, it's a bird. So they saw these things somewhat different. Some of them saw an old man. Some of them saw an old woman. Some of them saw a buffalo. They called it a buffalo woman. Uh, so they had slightly different names. So what we, what Lou White Eagle, when he came and stayed with my wife for 30 days along with his family, and this was in, this was in 1989, uh, and it was during a protest in Memphis. I live in Memphis, Tennessee. Downtown Memphis has a very impressive mound site, which was probably the place where uh, Hernando de Soto back in 1543 first saw the Mississippi River. Uh, there was a protest going on because archaeologists wanted to dig into one of the mounds there. So the this arrow priest of the Cheyenne came over here to be involved in the protest. Well, he didn't have anywhere to stay. So my wife and I had him move in with us for 30 days. Uh, I don't recommend that, by the way, to anybody. Uh, you can go visit, uh, let him stay for a while, but I don't recommend uh, letting a shaman uh, come and stay with you for 30 days. Long involved story there, but we had some very fun and interesting times. Uh, anyway, we had to literally go outside at night and he had to point to specific stars and say, that's the star. And then I would know sometimes the Greek name or the name we used, and then he would say, use the name that they used. And there's no, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Uh, they were looking at the same stars, but they use different names and they see different patterns. But if we can go back to this whole thing, every single Native American culture that I am aware of, and when I say American, I mean North America. I'm not talking about Central or South America because the stars look a little different to them. Uh, and the patterns are a little different. Uh, but they all here saw both Cygnus and Orion as connected because the Milky Way, the band of the Milky Way, which, of course, is the edge of the Milky Way, uh, that that band connects them both and they are connected. And it took a while. I mean, for for years, there was this idea like in Egypt, the exact same thing is true in Egypt. Also, Graham Hancock and Robert Bouval, 
uh, are known for a lot of things, but one of the things they're most known for is the Orion constellation theory, best known as the OCT, O-C-T. And that was that the three pyramids of Egypt are arranged to mimic the three belt stars of Orion in the sky. Now, in order to make that work, you have to flip, it's not even rotate, it's flip Orion upside down to make it work on Earth. And if you, if you flip it upside down, it still doesn't quite work, but it looks, you know, reasonable. Uh, it, it looks reasonable. And around 2004, Andrew Collins, through a, um, a friend of his who is an engineer, uh, the guy's name is Rodney Hale. Rodney Hale went out and got the idea outside, took a picture of Cygnus, took it in, and he's a computer expert, and he took the three the three main pyramids at Giza and overlaid Cygnus on it, and it was a perfect match. And he went, wait a minute. And then he laid Orion on it. Well, Orion is not a perfect match. If you actually look at the book, uh, that uh, the Orion mystery, where they have this picture, they had to expand. They had to blow up the stars so large to make them appear to fit, but they don't really fit exactly. Nothing fits exactly. Well, Andrew believed and started writing that maybe Cygnus is what it is. And then he found that there is mythology in Egypt where it shows the Milky Way and it has one end and the other. And it appears that Orion and Cygnus were both on this. Well, Andrew was sort of a pariah then. Everybody said, that's absurd. Everybody knows that it's uh, that it's not Cygnus, it's not Deneb, that it's Orion. So then along came around 2006, 7, 8, uh, and I think I found this and sent it to Andrew, but he was already on this trail. Andrew, during his visits to the United States, had told us that he thought that American mound sites were aligned to Cygnus and the Milky Way. At the time, I thought, eh, maybe I didn't really care. I didn't care one bit about any of that. But I happened to buy a very good computer stellar program and started looking and damn, he's right. And it was everywhere. Every single site I went to in the United States, in, in Native American mound sites, and you'd look at very specific alignments, Cygnus came up again and again and again. Then I found the information that mainstream archaeology had found saying that the soul of the dead is sent to Orion's nebula, Messier 42, which uh, Orion goes basically every night. If you go out and you look at it, you'll see it on the eastern horizon, and then it goes across the sky and sets in the western horizon. So when it's on the eastern horizon, uh, you've got the three belt stars on the bottom and the nebulas at the top. But as it crosses, it reverses. The and that will be different stars. for the southern hemisphere, right? That's right. It'd be a little different. So the three the three belt stars are at the top and Messier 42 is at the bottom. So the soul would leap to it. This was what these mainstream archaeologists found. And then it's the soul makes the leap right before it sinks beneath the horizon. Then the next night, when Orion comes up on the eastern horizon, the soul hops onto the Milky Way, moves north 
and then makes its way to a judge. It takes quite a while for the soul to make this, this trip. But the judge, according to different Native American tribes, was an eagle or a hawk, but it was always a raptor bird. There's almost nobody that says it wasn't a raptor bird. There's one group that says it is a buffalo woman, but it's always like a raptor bird. It judges the soul. If the soul passes this judgment and this test, it is then allowed to go through the portal, which would be Deneb, the brightest star. And then it goes to the other world again. Well, mainstreamers said that. Well, even Graham Hancock, uh, Graham, Graham Hancock, who I know, uh, the, it was in uh, 2014, I believe. Graham showed the cover. I don't have that book here. Uh, in one of his talks that I was at, which I gave a talk also, we had 500 people at this at this talk. Uh, and he showed it and he says, OK, uh, the exact same alignment of Cygnus and Orion takes place in Egypt. That Egyptian, the Egyptian stuff is exactly the same as the Native American belief system. So this idea. Yeah, Egypt in terms of Native America or North America, it's like same. It's the same same mythology, same exact cosmology and mythology. They called the stars different things, but they were still talking about Orion and they were talking about Cygnus. The and their psychopomp Thoth had an ibis head, which yes, is not that far off than a swan. Of the bird. And they had two souls. You know, in Egypt, you had the Ka and the Ba. You had the two soul concept and you had the weight of the soul, or the weighing of the soul. Native Americans have the same thing. They don't call it the Ka and the Ba. Native Americans call it the life soul and the uh, the free soul, the life soul and the free soul. So there's two souls. One of the souls has weight. The other has no weight. One of them represent, keeps your memories, keeps your consciousness, uh, keeps uh, your identity. You are the what is called the free soul. And the free soul is called the free soul because it leaves the body at death and it can make the transition then back. And it makes this path of soul's journey from Orion eventually to Cygnus, then out to the other world. And under some circumstances, both Egyptians and Native Americans said that this soul could reincarnate. In fact, in Native American lore, and I've had people ask me, why were some people in Native American burials, why were some people put in these really elaborate stone tombs, which people don't know this. They think that a burial mound, a Native American burial mound, they just laid the bodies down and piled earth on them and made these conical mounds. Conical means like a, a cone, like an ice cream cone. There were probably a million of these conical mounds in North America uh, at the time that Columbus arrived in the Bahamas. Columbus never got up here. But by that time, by 1492, there were probably a million of those and hundreds of thousands of other mounds that were used for other purposes. But in the burial mounds, <clears throat> in many of them, they have elaborate tombs made out of stone, stone chambers that look identical to the stone chambers in England. You just have to excavate down to those to find them because they covered them up here. In England, they didn't cover them up quite as much. But then in England, they started excavating them too and then exposing these stone chambers. But the same thing. And in those stone chambers, we had elaborate burials of what are usually called chiefs, priests and priestesses, and sometimes their cohorts were buried with them. 
Thousands of these burials have been found in America, the United States, thousands of them. But there were, at the time Columbus got here, we know there were at least 57 million people living here. Let me say that again. The time people people just are astonished when they know this. This is mainstream knowledge now. This is not something I make that I'm making up. I got these numbers from mainstream archaeology. There were at least 57 million people in the Americas when Columbus got here. Now, within three generations, that number went down by 95 percent. 95 percent because Native Americans were totally. Uh, they had no immunity to all the diseases that the Europeans brought with them. Smallpox. Do you think uh, that could be a cover story for just a bunch of mass murder, though? Well, they all we did a lot of we <laughs> our ancestors. I'll put it that way. Did a lot of mass murder. Yes, they murdered loads of people. But we know this from the Native Americans, entire villages. I mean, cities, there were cities. Cahokia probably had 50,000 people living in it in the year 1200. 50,000, it was bigger than London. The place you mentioned, Cahokia, Illinois, 120 mounds, had 50,000 people. Well, there were cities all over the United States. They were all over. And there are stories of Georgia where like, even when DeSoto got there, Hernando DeSoto in, in 1542, 43, DeSoto marched through the entire Southeast. He got to some cities in Georgia and the huts were still there where the people, I'm calling them huts, but they were houses. They were still there. The temples were still there. And as they moved around, they found skeletons everywhere. Thousands of people had died and the Native Americans that were around then just said they all died and they died of diseases. So DeSoto wasn't the first to come in. There were people many decades before DeSoto got here that came into Florida and then they spread those diseases everywhere. So there's no doubt those diseases just spread everywhere throughout the Americas and just wiped out the population. Uh, so anyway, here's the thing. Yeah, where I was going with this. So there have been thousands of burials that have been recovered, but there were 57 million people already here. Then how many had died? Where are all the other burials? Well, we know this from the Native Americans. Almost everybody was cremated. And the reason is, is that in their mythology and their belief system, which the elite are the ones who held this knowledge, the elite, the priests and the chiefs, and it was used as a way to control the populace. But the free soul, remember I mentioned we have a free soul. We have two souls. One is called the life soul. The life soul comes from your physical body, which we'll get into where what all this means in a minute or where this concept comes from. But the physical body is a type of spirit, spiritual energy. And it is spiritual energy that's been transformed into matter, physical matter. And they knew, and in their in their belief system, they believed that everything was spiritual and that we came from the earth. They already knew that. We come from the earth. And the free soul would come in to this life soul. And the life soul is animated. The physical body is animated. And it allows the free soul to control it. So the free soul is, spirit, is pure spiritual energy. It enters the physical body, which is the 
life soul, which gives us animation, the ability to move and see and feel and interact with the world. So at the point of death, what they wanted, what they believed they had to do is they had to take the life soul, the physical body, and return it to its most primordial state, which the most primordial state is turning it ashes, dust to dust, that we started out as basically dirt, physical matter, and they believed you had to grind it down, grind the bones down, deflesh it, and then burn it, put it back into the soil, and that allowed the free soul to be totally away from the life soul. And then, if necessary, it could reincarnate. However, for the leaders, the chiefs, the elite priests, the people who were most important, they preserved the body. They kept the body intact and they put it in tombs, just like the Egyptians did. You know, you don't find many uh, mummified bodies of the general population in Egypt. The reason you don't is because people were cremated with the same idea that you had to free the free soul from the physical body. Do you think uh, preserving the bodies of the ruling elite was some kind of a method for reincarnation? Well, do you think the physical bodies being preserved might also create sort of an anchor or bridge to that free soul so that the, um, you know, the next generation of the priest class and on and on could still contact the information that those ancestral shamans that, had. That's it. That's I would say that, yes, there is that idea there that that is there. Uh, they would actually preserve the bones. Uh, and there's there's great stories in in the chronicles of Hernando de Soto, where they went into uh, several of the temples uh, that the Native Americans had on the top of these gigantic mounds. The temples, some of them had walls 50 feet high. But in one really impressive one, an incredible story, they went into this temple where almost everybody was dead, and there were baskets lining the walls, hundreds of beautiful baskets. And DeSoto's men, of course, were looking for gold. And they thought, oh, my God, these baskets are filled with gold and silver and pearls and all that. So they went and they opened them up. They were all filled with bones and they were the bones of the ancestors who were the priests and the ancestors who were the chiefs. But the idea of preserving a body along with the entourage of a chief or a really important priest was this body would allow that person, that person's free soul to return and reanimate that specific body and come back to that specific body. That was about reincarnation. That is what it was. But re- not reincarnation as we think of it. We think of reincarnation. Almost like resurrection instead. Exactly. That's the term that they, they, they should have used, but they used the term reincarnation. At least that was our translation of that particular term. The same thing in Egypt. Uh, they thought that the pharaohs might, again, your turn, I like it, resurrect. Uh, and you've just changed what I'm going to say from here on. From here on out on other shows, it is, it is a type of resurrection of that particular body. Yes. Awesome. Well, Greg, we got about two and a half minutes to round out the first hour. Don't have to rush it. But if you don't mind giving people some closing thoughts for the free audience before we get into our excellent, humongous 
extension for the uh, the big tribe of people that support the show and get the second hours. Would love for you to give closing thoughts to the free people and tell them how to find your books and you know what maybe is coming next. Well, the easiest way to find the books is to Google my name. Uh, don't Google Greg Little like is what's under my name. Make it Gregory L. Little. Put my middle initial in. It's L. If you put Greg Little in, you're going to find football players. I don't know why there's so many football players now named Greg Little, but there are. Uh, and football players they're probably are probably pretty big. They're probably, yeah, not, well, they're probably big Gregs. Yeah, they are big Gregs. Uh, they're they're actually pretty close here. One of them's at Ole Miss. Again, I'm in Memphis. Ole Miss is 40 miles away. Uh, anyway, Gregory L. Little, just Google me. You'll see the books. Or Google Andrew Collins. You'll find me, too. Uh, our books are there. The newest one, uh, Origins of the Gods. Uh, it's there. That's the way to find me. I'm on Twitter, Facebook. Um, you can find me there, too. Uh, as far as what's next, uh, I'm doing more work on uh, mounds and we are, um, I write self-help books. Uh, you can find Freedom to Change as uh, self-help books. It's the number two, freedom to change.org. Uh, you can find me there. Uh, and so I'm still doing work on mounds, writing more. I'm doing a follow-up book to Origins of the Gods. Uh, Andrew's working on other stuff and uh, I'm easy to find. Uh, just Google my name and you'll find everything. And it, it's a pleasure. Uh, folks, uh, be a patron and hear the rest because I'm going to talk about some things I have never talked about before uh, and aren't in the book. I'm going to tell you some things that aren't in the book uh, when we continue this shortly. Very cool, man. Wow. I'm honored for a little bit of exclusive new information. Okay, we'll It's exclusive. Awesome. There's so many directions I would love to hear you speak on that there's no way we'll fit it all in, but maybe we'll see you come back. And thanks everybody for tuning in. Definitely support us on the, for the Patreon and the Rockfin side and get this awesome second hour. Dr. Little, it's been an honor. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Chance. such a good one. 
I say that, is that the only way that I begin outro monologues? I'm pretty sure that's what I always say. Hey, wasn't that a good show? But isn't it kind of true? <laughs> I've been wanting to have Gregory L. Little, doctor, on the podcast for a solid three years, maybe longer. I first got intimately familiar with his work when I picked up Denisovan Origins by himself and Andrew Collins that I'm holding up right here. Fascinating exploration into the uh, earlier versions of humanity, possibly connected to giants, beings that can live in the extreme north and the cold and the high altitude without suffering the consequences that current version of humanity seems to suffer. There's so many interesting threads with that. It could be like genetic. It could be that they had a better energetic balance in their biofield bio or they're using breath like in a Wim Hof way. I don't know, but Dennis Oven Origins is a great book. I listened to the audio book of the one that we were discussing today, Origins of the Gods. And it's narrated by, I think, Darren from Grimerica. He does a great job narrating it. And I feel like I can say that with some authority since I also now narrate audiobooks, <laughs> which you can check out over at, well, I guess just get on the links of the show notes and see the two audiobooks I've got published, more on the way. Definitely, if nothing else, pick up the July's End with Black Swans by Dylan Sicosio. But if you want some fun fiction that's also got some truth bombs in it, the Lindsay Sharman novel from Rogue Ways, uh, Sign Curve of Aeons, also a great, great story time. So I hope you do. That's a great way to support me. And you're also supporting Dylan and you're also supporting Lindsay if you buy those. Very cool. Uh, so the other thing I got to say before I get much further in, did you notice anything different about this episode? Maybe like right off the bat, right out the gate? The badass psychedelic rock vibe of the brand spanking new intro music. Huge, huge thanks to Alex Michael, who was on a few weeks back. The conspiracy music guru himself offered to make me some new music for the, the show. And I, I, I didn't really know what direction to send him in. I was just like, you know, something like more psychedelic, but also... Got that kind of like healing vibe, but more masculine. I probably didn't even give him that much direction. <laughs> like, I think the, the only real direction he got was like chill psychedelic. He totally knocked it out of the park. That dude is a crusher. Didn't even take him that long to put together. This is what I'm talking about. I like the previous intro music I had. I appreciate it. It served me well, but it's definitely time for a new thing. The vibe is, I think, more aligned with how... I don't know how I feel about my show. And also it's cool to be getting the music from somebody that is in alignment with what we talk about here and has been a guest and all that. So thank you, Alex. You guys got to check out Conspiracy Music Guru for all kinds of good music, but especially that Solfeggio, True Solfeggio album. I absolutely swear by it. It's astounding. Mm, I have so many things I need to tell you guys about where to even start. So first of all, uh, if you're new around here, or if I just need to remind you because you haven't done it yet, you can get the second half of this show and every other extended version of the interviews I do on Interverse on my Rockfin or Patreon. That is linked in the show notes. Very easy to find. Rockfin.com slash Interverse. Patreon.com slash Interverse. Rockfin, $10 a month, but you get access to the entire network of extended content like 
my buddy Dan from the Cosmic Keys podcast, who recently had me on his Rockfin exclusive show. He calls it the Speakeasy. That was a good time. Can't even watch that unless you're a Rockfin premium member. So what are you waiting for? Sign up. You get all the good stuff. But Patreon is only five bucks a month. You only get my content. But there are some cool perks that are different than a Rockfin. Like you get a custom link to the RSS feed of the plus shows. So if you want to listen to the audio only version of the podcast, but still get the extended version and have that plugged into your podcast playing app of choice, very easy to do that. $5 a month. It's practically like nothing in today's inflation world too. So help me help you. And you're going to, if you really like Greg Little, you're going to want to hear the second half of this conversation Because as he teased at the end of the first hour, he actually brought forward some perspectives about the plasma beings that we ended up discussing more in the second hour than in the first that he has not talked about anywhere else yet. So very honored to have that in uh, my podcast. Usually, yeah, let me just also say that it was more than an hour in the second half. So it's more than a second half. Uh, Greg and I were having such a good time that we, I, I didn't know where to stop him. And I still had a couple more things I wanted to flesh out before the end. And he clearly was on a roll. He didn't seem to be noticing the time at all. So we went, I don't know, maybe an extra 10 minutes. If I had to guess still very worth it. That ex, that last 10 minutes was where we brought it all home. Uh, so the topics we got into in the plus extension, first off, we were getting into Edgar Casey, the psychic Edgar Casey, fascinating individual. They talk about Edgar Casey a lot in the book origins of the gods. And uh, we discussed the electromagnetic nature of memory, how it's stored in the biofield, which is how I run into it all the time when I'm doing tuning sessions for clients. Discuss native American creation stories and how they reflect the Trinity that seems to be omnipresent in all the different cosmologies of the world and of mythology. Uh, The original spiritual energy that creates the physical realm. Talking about the ether. (laughs) Uh, Then I shared some experiences of seeing like plasma entities myself, light orbs. We talked about these plasma beings. We started to flesh that idea out and then got into a tangent of discussing people who seem to have interacted with them and gotten guidance from them in the form of what they considered them to be like angelics. Uh, Joan of Arc, who, by the way, I I wonder a little bit about Joan of Arc. She might be astrotheology masquerading as history or somebody that was real, but then they applied astrotheology to her life. I'm not going to get into that right now, but (laughs) maybe in a future conversation, I can flesh out why I think that more. Uh, And also that these angels are sort of trickstery, trickster entities. We could have said a lot more about tricksters, but we definitely touched on it. And then one of the earliest contact experiences ever documented is Emanuel Swedenborg. And we talked about his experience being taken to visit beings and civilizations on, quote, other planets in the solar system. but. You know, maybe we had some ideas about why that might, how that might work aside from like physically visiting planets that I didn't really mention this, but you guys that know me know I don't particularly believe that the uh, wandering star luminaries are actually planets the way that Earth is a realm that we can walk around on. But, you know, I'm open to all kinds of ideas. It's just clearly not what NASA tells us it is. Then we got really deep into the plasma entity gravy talking about the living biological nature of plasma and how it has these self-organizing principles and appears to be conscious, even seems to replicate itself in a fashion similar to cellular mitosis with DNA 
twin double helix things and everything. Um, discuss synesthesia and the origin of senses and the brain as a fem- filter or membrane. The spiritual entities and mystics who see them. That was a topic. Uh, biolog- the biology of plasma entities. Yeah, I already said that. Kind of just reading through my notes here. Then he talked about one thing that was really wild in the book. This manifestation of what was thought to be the Virgin Mary and sometimes her child in the 70s in Egypt where like this being would manifest almost every day for like a solid year. Very fascinating. Then we got into a cool thread about psychedelics and synesthesia. I didn't know this about Dr. Little, but with his background and how long he's been in the game, I'm not surprised to hear that he has some experience and some ideas about psychedelics, which is interesting because we are talking a lot about shamanic cultures and obviously the entheogenic aspect of these mystical arts that seem to be ancient as humanity are clearly linked to plant medicines. So that was fun. And there's so much more in the conversation than that. It's hard to really cover it off in notes, but at the end he even gave us an at home experiment that you can do yourself. If you got a bathtub and some crystals and you can turn the lights out to demonstrate the luminescent quality of the piezoelectricity that crystals hold. Really cool. So check it out. It's super worth it. Get into that plus extension. Man, there's so many th- so many threads that maybe I can touch on here in the outro. First of all, I'm fascinated by, in a morbid, I guess, kind of way, the whole narrative of death by disease of the Native and uh, North and South Americans possibly being one of two things or a mixture of both where the empires who came to conquer probably just wiped out a lot of people themselves and then maybe blamed it on disease. And I know that a lot of the native cultures actually continue oral history traditions that describe that disease, uh, smallpox and things like that actually taking out millions of their people. But the thing about when conquerors conquer, change the language of the people that they conquered, kill a lot of them, and then raise the orphans, very likely and very possible that their own cultural memory of what happened to themselves has been marred by the conquering Martian diction of Aries that has been granted to them for their story of themselves. But it could be too, that there's some sort of energetic sickness that came over the peoples in the form of like coming in contact with what they call the Watiko, the, the madness and the greed of the conquering conquistadors potentially could have transmitted not in a germ theory way, but in a, uh, field way type of sadness and dissonance into their energy field that threw them out of whack with nature and maybe allowed them to start you know, suffering some symptoms that led to many, many demises. I don't know. Fascinated too in the conversation about the two souls uh, aspect of the, I think we talked about this more in the first hour, but the free soul and the life soul or the soul that is in the body. To me, that makes a ton of sense because I encounter the intelligence of the body all the time. The biofield of the body is a fractal microcosm of the entire universe. And it seems to me that our bodies actually know everything that there is available to be known. And the question of answering 
many deep ponders that we might have could just come down to how well we can communicate or what language we have to communicate with our body intelligence. To me, I think maybe we actually could know everything and that the psychic knowing has everything to do with our body's health and our ability to communicate with it and the language we use as an intellectual scaffolding for that communication with the body. I don't know, but it seems real to me. (laughs) If you want to hear more about that type of stuff, I highly recommend the new episode of Alpha Vedic that came out today as I'm recording this, I guess a couple of days ago when you're hearing this. But Alpha Vedic, the brilliant Dr. Bear Lando and the homie Mike Winner, they had one of my personal all-time heroes, Eileen Dave McCusick on AlphaCast, and it was a great time. Makes me really want to have Eileen back on. And I've decided I'm going to go to the Music and Sky Festival that Mike Winter puts on. I'll have a link to share that is like a discount code that supports me with a little bit of kickback and gets you a cheaper ticket. If you're somebody around the region of Cali and you might maybe want to go to this amazing conscious gathering, would love to see you there. I hear Eileen McCusick, the biofield tuning fork lady master herself is going to be there. So like I was already really strongly wanting to go. I was torn about going to that or Flatoberfest. It hurts me to say like, I think I'm going to pick music and sky over Flatoberfest, but it's more of a hell yes for the music and sky because of being outside and possibly meeting Eileen and meeting uh, the amazing Mike winner and all the other awesome people that are going to be there. I just like the idea of camping and music and being outside full time a little more than I like the idea of the uh, indoor vibe of the Flattoberfest, which I went to last year. So I don't feel super bad about it, but if you're listening to this. I'm sorry, Baldy. <laughs> ben Balderson's doing a presentation there and I would love to buy locate and go to both. They're not exactly the same weekend, but I can't do both trips. It's just not going to work out. So that's what I'm currently planning on doing now. On this conversation about the intelligence of your biofield and we've been talking about plasma entities, how plasma beings can have some sort of consciousness or intelligence to themselves. Well, the electric field around your body is this living intelligence of bioplasma, in my opinion. It's not the same kind of plasma as superheated gas that has this radiative, radiative effect, but it's maybe a more subtle plasma field closer to ether. That's how I understand it. And when I run into compartmentalized energy in people's biofield, I'm thinking, and I've talked about this before, but I'm thinking that the whole concept of demonic possession could be explained as plasma in your energy field that has become separate from the rest of your flow and thus taken on a mind of its own, an identity of its own, and it's a wounded identity. It's a pain body living inside your body. And for sure, that could have some influence on your state of mind, on your emotions, on your subconsciously driven behaviors. Absolutely. And it's a cool way to demystify the idea of demons. Now, that being said, I'm not ruling out like non-corporeal intelligences. Obviously, that's a big part of this conversation. But I think that that phenomenon of plasma entities being a form of life that has been as of yet unrecognized could also be explanatory of what happens in people's own energy field when they become separated from parts of themselves. Now on that note, (laughs) I've thought this for a long time too, but there's all kinds of talk about the, uh, the ascension, ascension process. And 
while I believe much of it is some bullshit and there's a lot of like ascension rhetoric in cults throughout all time, possibly the value of that concept is that, you know, (laughs) it makes me think of this is going to really flex my nerd cred, but makes me think of Qui-Gon Jinn from the Star Wars trilogy, the prequel trilogy and how Qui-Gon is the first Jedi who can manifest as like a ghost through the force. And it's because he's tapped into the living force before he died. And it's very similar to what I conceptualize Ascension possibly being, which is an ability to hold your awareness and attention in such a powerful and complete way, kind of like lucid dreaming that after your physical body dies, the bioenergy, the luminescence, the light body of your evap of what for most people would be an evaporation of their life force into the larger field of ether. What if the uh, ascended master is a being that has figured out how to go on holding their memory, their identity and their awareness in a vibratory pattern as a, you know, a light body as a, a vehicle to continue existing as an individuated consciousness and point of awareness with all their memory because memory is stored in your energy field. What if that energy field could actually retain itself instead of sort of getting washed into the larger ocean of cosmic consciousness? I don't know. Obviously this isn't to say that like, if you fail to do this, then you cease to exist. I'm sure that whatever lived and whatever existed will always continue to have some kind of record and memory of itself in this larger universal ether ocean. But I don't know. Hope that all makes sense about the uh, Ascension idea. But if you guys want to work with me for some biofield tuning, I'd love it. Hit me up. Chance at interversepodcast.com or go to my website. Look at the shop tab on interversepodcast.com and check out the sound healing page or the Oracle divination counseling page. We can sling some I Ching. We can talk some tarot. We can tune up your energy field and get you into a more harmonious, coherent balance with yourself, stronger self-awareness, stronger flow state. It definitely works. I actually had pretty recently a session with uh, one of Eileen's students who offered to give me a tune-up and she found some static going back to some old times in my right knee that pertains to procrastination as one of the things like self-created obstacles is maybe a more general way of putting it. And ever since then, I've done a really great job with certain things that I've tended to procrastinate on in the past. Namely, the big, the biggest one is scheduling shows in a responsible and consistent way so that I don't feel like I'm flying by the seat of my pants. And it's worked so well that I'm kind of like overloaded with bookings of shows. It's awesome. Also, If you're not checking out Vibrant, if you're kind of just on the Interverse train, check out Vibrant, especially the new one. The title doesn't do justice at all, and I'm sorry, but the title is The uh, Horses of of Babylon or something like that. And we start off talking about the Equus Cabalus. (laughs) And Lucas King joins myself, Mario Garza of Symbolic Studies, and our buddy Gabriel Slick Dissident on a huge tour of many mathematical, gematrological, astrological, astrotheology reveals of the incredible nature of number in our construct and how, 
yeah, how these certain numerical concepts and patterns reflect themselves throughout the fractal ad infinitum. It was badass. And I'd love to see more of you guys jumping in on the live stream Wednesday nights when we do those vibrants. But if you're just now hearing about it, go back and catch the video. It is a huge presentation. Like I want to watch it again from an observer perspective and not in the driver's seat. It was incredible. Another thing too, if you're interested in the thread, I think this came up more in the second hour, but I was talking to Greg Little about, you know, like what about the sun? Is the sun a giant plasma entity that has its own consciousness and is maybe like a director or the artist that is painting the, the, the craft of the world. I don't know, but interestingly enough, there's another Greg who wrote a book called son of God by Greg Sams, Gregory Sams. And I read this couple of years back. It was a suggestion from Michael Tessarion and that Michael had this guy, Greg on unslaved. I'd love to have Greg Sams on my show. Never quite made the connection. Maybe I should try again, but this possibly is a great, uh, additional read, especially if you guys are into all the gravy that I love to break down and we'll get into with Dylan Sicosio about the, uh, Helio <laughs> Helios and the, the grand craftsman of the universe and how all the symbolism pertaining to that carpenter, AKA Jesus Christ is talking about the sun. And maybe there is an energetic plasma consciousness reason for that. Maybe the sun is something we can communicate with. People do sun gazing, right? But wow, I've been long in the tooth on this outro. There's just so much to say. I'm stoked about life. <laughs> uh, how cool is it that as soon as Leo season begins, I got this new intro music, new identity, new first house, new first thing you hear. Because Leo's my first house. I'm a Leo rising. Even though I chopped off the main, I'm still a main character. <laughs> so huge thanks to... Alex Michael for the new intro music. I'll be singing his praises for a long time. I can't stop listening to it. It gets me pumped. Really feels to, like it fits my vibe better than anything else I've ever been offered. So thank you so much, dude. And also, I'm going to play us out with a great track. One of the newest from a brand new friend, Nigel, who is also Tunnel Mental on YouTube. He joined our Telegram chat. I've actually heard his music before on other shows like uh, what should we call it? <laughs> Media Monarchy with James Evan Pilato. I enjoy that show. So thank you, Nigel. We're going to play this new track. It's called Love, Love, Beloved by Tunnel Mental. And I hope you enjoy it. I love all you guys. Let's work together. You know, whatever you do, don't forget that you're an expression of the universal ether, ultimate, all-knowing Akashic consciousness. And that means that your intuition can be trusted. And it's all about getting clear with yourself clearing out the static, being able to listen to that third ear, which is your heart, your car, Dio, car, <laughs> same as the carpenter idea, same as the car that is a carrier of information. The heart is the carrier of the Dio, which is God. The heart is the hinge of God, just like the Latin cardia, which means a cardinal or a hinge, like the cardinals of the the Cardinals, which are the hinges of the Vatican powers that should not be. But, you know, the symbolism in their system isn't itself evil. It's the application and the enslavement, obviously, that we have a problem with. So, yeah, enjoy this track by Nigel. I love you guys. Hit me up for some sound healing tuning stuff. Can't wait for more Interverse. There's so much on deck. Everything is going awesome. Hope you enjoy the new intro music. 
Check out Tunnel Mental. Check the show notes for links to join Plus on Rockfin or Patreon. Do all the things. Get in our Patreon group. It is blowing up, especially after the Owen Benjamin show. So many new bears to party with in our fun chat. And I'm out of here. Much love, everybody. Peace out. Peace out.